Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm editor Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our deputy editor Josie Tutty. Hello. And news editor Paul Wallbank. Hello. And later on, we'll be speaking to Speed's Ian Perrin about slow-moving media agencies. Media agencies have become too siloed, too focused on deals, too focused on annual deals that happen too slowly. The history of Naked. Um, so, so I think that was one of the difficulties of growing the Naked brand. I almost think that Naked would have been better staying smaller at a more premium um, cost. And the biggest mistake of Ian's career. Um, I think the biggest mistake I've made, and it's a very personal one, is... You'll find out exactly what that is later on in the show. But first, this week's topics. ACMA to investigate media coverage of Christchurch terrorist attacks. Woolies launches standalone media business with Mike Tyquin at the helm. WPP boss Mark Reed speaks out about agencies' problems. And 10 replaces Pointless with celebrity name game fronted by, guess who, Grant Dunya. So first up, the Australian Communications and Media Authority is planning on investigating the media's coverage of the Christchurch terrorist attacks after several media outlets chose to broadcast part of the shooter's own footage of the massacre, which claimed the lives of 50 people. I think it's pretty safe to say that we knew there'd be complaints about the coverage and we knew that people were pretty distressed that it was almost forced upon them without much prior warning and they didn't necessarily want to see a terrorist attack live streamed on their televisions. But obviously Foxtel 9 and 7 all showed excerpts from the live stream. Now Facebook has also copped a heap of criticism because it could not contain the footage. But that is, of course, beyond ACMA's remit. So you've got these old school television companies who I think quite rightly are being held to account for what they forced upon their viewers But then they're also sort of hitting back and I know that News Corp, which owns Foxtel, used the opportunity when issuing a statement saying they'll comply with ACMA to have a bit of a dig at its digital rivals and say that the television companies and the traditional media players are being held much, much more to account than the digital players. I think we'll get to that in a moment but first, Paul, say ACMA finds that the television network's did do the wrong thing and and they did breach their obligations as broadcasters. Can ACMA actually do anything or is this going to be a slap on the wrist? So, yeah, Viv, I think a game will find that it's going to be a slap on the wrist. So it's interesting to see what ACMA will say and they were surprisingly quick to come out. They didn't wait for um, complaints to come in but instead issued a release saying that they were going to investigate it and it looked like they hadn't actually looked at any of the complaints but had decided off their own bat to do that, which is very, very unusual for an Australian media regulator. The other thing that interested me is obviously Foxtel 9 and 7 showed actual excerpts, but even the ABC were showing a still of the from the gunman's perspective of him about to go into the mosque. And I thought even that is, is quite horrific and it's surprising from the ABC, to be honest, that they're, they are also complicit in this to a certain extent. Obviously, a still is slightly different to a video, but it's still, 
I still felt it was a step too far. Yeah, and a lot of the excerpts that were taken, um, Sky has taken exception to uh, some of the descriptions and showing him inside the mosque. But it, they definitely did show footage of him entering the mosque and after he left the mosque and was on the street shooting as well. So uh, there was a lot of use there. It's interesting too, in talking to all of the networks about this, how... Um, how they were so adamant that they've done nothing wrong on this. And this is going to be an interesting clash between the regulator, if the regulator does find that they've done something wrong, because the networks have firmly the view that they have done nothing wrong at all. So ACMA has also expressed that it's concerned about the content that was made available on broadcasters' websites, but that is beyond ACMA's legislative powers. So it's going to try and work with the Australian Press Council uh, the other great wrist slapper of the industry <laughs> to decide what's gone wrong there. But that, of course, if we're talking about online, brings us to Facebook, which really struggled to ca- contain the flow of that live stream and, and people sharing it and and staying on top of it. Now, the broadcasters are sort of using that, I think, as a bit of a diversion where they're like, yeah, we're bad, but guess what? Facebook's worse. Uh, whereas I think that the two problems can exist at the same time mm. and, and one doesn't necessarily cancel the other one out. So I know that uh, Tim Burroughs, uh, our boss, is in London at the moment for Advertising Week Europe and there the Guardian boss, so the CEO of the Guardian Media Group, David Pemsel, has hit out saying that Facebook's inability to control the live streaming is simply not good enough, particularly when it's Facebook as a platform that takes money from companies mm-hmm. and, and is an ad-funded platform. Paul, is there anything else that Facebook should have done? Did did they try and contain it? Is it a problem that's just so big they can't be expected to contain it or where, where, where do you think they, their responsibility sits? Well, let's just take a step back to um, the segue into this part and that that is that the – one of the criticisms that's been coming out of the ACCC review is that uh, there's too many silos on this. So we've got broadcasters in one silo, we've got publishers in another silo, and the digital platforms pretty well in no silo whatsoever are able to roam free around the planes. So this really does underscore the points that were made by ACMA and by Facebook as well in their response to the ACCC's recommendations that we need to have unified regulatory um, administration that uh, properly looks at the realities of today's uh, media landscape rather than that one of maybe 30, 40 years ago. Now, going back to Facebook, um, on one level, you've got to have some sympathy in that when there's millions, if not billions... I have no sympathy for Facebook. uh, When when there's millions, if not billions, of um, uploads every day, how you actually pick that up. Now, um, I would I would point out, and this is just as much for the law enforcement as well as the social media platforms, that blokes like this have been posting some pretty vile stuff and it's been going through for quite some time. And, of course, this was taking it up to uh, several levels above that. But there's been a lot of tolerance for inappropriate things being put up online. But, again, the, um, the broadcasters themselves haven't been shy in putting this stuff up. One of the interesting things with this is that News Corp, that it's come together, Roadshow, they're currently running, was very much a pains to say that they are a professionally curated platform as opposed to a user-generated platform. And yet still, despite the fact we've got that professional curation, this stuff still went up. 
um, despite the fact there were editors, there were producers, there were journalists involved, and yet it still came through rather than uh, an algorithm that's clearly struggling with this sort of content. So this really is part of that problem. But for Facebook and for the same matter, YouTube and all the brand safety problems we've seen with them over the recent years, user-generated content, there, there are some real challenges on this. And 15 years ago, we were all uh, talking about the uh, user-generated comment, uh, sorry, user-generated content was the uh, new thing for the media platforms and for the media industry. Uh, it's turning out that it's not that simple after all. Well, Pemsel from the Guardian has said that it is a shame and really disappointing that we needed something of such horror to make people start talking about the role of these technology companies, which I think speaks to what you've just mentioned, Paul, where the terrorist whose name I won't mention or glorify had been posting terrible things for a long time, but it's actually taken him killing 50 people and live streaming it to the world for us to get to the point of really talking about that and wondering where the responsibility lies and and how we can stop the proliferation of such content. So I think it will be interesting to see what Facebook does in the coming months as they roll from scandal to scandal, but also to see what ACMA does for our broadcasters and how they respond to any slap on the wrist. And we should keep in mind too that this is not new, that um, a few years ago there was a guy live streaming him actually murdering people in the United States. Um, uh, we Recently we had um, a gamer beating up his partner on, um, I think it was Twitch or YouTube. This is a problem all of these user-generated platforms uh, have to deal with. That uh, And this is a challenge that I'm not sure that they've been handling particularly well, given that they've all been running there for a decade, 15 years. So up next, Woolworths is launching its own standalone media business, fronted by former AdShell CEO Mike Tyquin. Now, when we first got this release, uh, it seemed to be a really, really big story because... It said that this new arm of Woolworths called Cartology would progressively replace the existing media buying model and arrangement, which caused a lot of confusion for us because Woolworths media buying is done by a bespoke Dentsu Aegis network agency called Woolworths at Dan. So it seemed like Woolworths at Dan was being replaced. And once I started asking those questions, they very quickly changed that quote to say that Cartology will progressively replace the existing media selling model and arrangement, which seems like quite a bizarre word to get wrong, buying and selling being polar opposites. But to clarify, Woolworths says it will continue to work with Woolworths at Dan and has no plans to cancel its relationship with the Dentsu Aegis Network. Instead, Tyquin, who left AdShell after the sale to O-Media was completed last year, will sort of be heading up this group, which is a bit unclear to me still, if I'm honest, but it's very much to do with Woolworths' owned media assets and the data that they collect, curate and possibly do other things with. I know that there's been some concerns in our comment thread about what this means for people's privacy and and data and a few jokes about how it's cute that people think that's not already happening. I know that Woolworths said in launching this that they've been watching other global retail giants and have sort of said that big retail brands can become media behemoths in their own right. So, Paul, 
what will this mean in terms of data privacy and and should we should we be concerned or does everyone know everything that we're doing anyway so we're past the point of no return? I think that horse has firmly bolted. It's a really interesting thing because if we go back a year on the podcast, we were all talking about GDPR and things like that. Uh, it just shows how far Australia's behind on this and we're, um, we're really struggling with that privacy side of things. But, uh, yeah, that, um, that, that horse is well and truly out of the... Uh, out of, well out of the paddock and over the hill, I think. And in, indeed, in that story, um, it says the Cartology team members uh, will be TMS Australia, Media Hub and Quantium one-to-one. So uh, uh, you've got those big data sharing platforms involved already. What I also found, found interesting, though, with that was from the supplier's point of view, because early in the piece, um, Woolworth said Cartology had been established to provide a more streamlined approach to, for suppliers to better communicate with customers via in-store digital and other media assets. So this really says that the um, the suppliers are going to find themselves more and more in that Woolworths web if they're not already uh, deeply embedded in it. So if I were a supplier, I'd be less than happy about this and they're probably going to find themselves committed to advertising on Woolies Radio or something um, as that gets rolled out over time. They have very much framed this as a positive for suppliers um, and I think web is a good word that you've used. So Brad Banducci, the CEO of the Woolworths Group, said that in Australia, Woolworths is well-placed to provide a platform for its suppliers to engage potential customers with close to a billion searches to our website for food and drinks in the past year alone. And he said that they know that the suppliers are looking for simplified ways to engage with customers. So is this a simple way to engage with customers or is it a simple way to trap them in the Woolworths web? <laughs> They're already well and truly trapped in it, but I think this is just um, another sticky strand of that web that's, that Woolies and Coles, for that matter, like to get their suppliers tangled in. So I would expect um, some polite suggestions from Woolies um, account managers to their suppliers saying, hey, uh, uh, you might want to advertise on our platforms a bit more. I do wonder also with, with the la- current landscape of consumers being very concerned about data, if these supermarkets are going to eventually start to find some issues, running into issues with customers essentially refusing to sign up for these loyalty programs, especially because they're just aware that everything they're doing, everything they're buying is being tracked. I personally don't have a loyalty program for that reason, for either Woolworths or Coles. And I have had them in the past and quite creepy things have happened in including things like I buy something in the shop, the next day I get a display ad for it online. I don't know if that's completely related, but, and I'm not implying that that's the sort of stuff that will start happening at Woolies, but who knows? Well, despite Paul and Josie's scepticism, I am (laughs) pleased to see Mike Tyquin back in the fold. So welcome back, Mike, and please don't steal our data. (laughs) So next up, WPP boss Mark Reid has spoken out about the Global Agency Holding Group at Advertising Week Europe in London, claiming it wasn't the group's size, but the complexity of the organisation that was the problem. And I know when I started in this role, I was given a map of the WPP and it was incredibly (laughs) confusing. So I'm inclined to agree with Mark a little bit here. Josie, what what was Mark's point and and is the worst of it over or is there more battles for WPP to come? Yeah, so Reid was trying to make the point that size isn't the issue with 
WPP currently, it's the complexity. So he pointed to Accenture as an example of a company that is big, but is actually streamlined and not complex. Um, he, this is a direct quote, he said, I'm a believer in the WPP brand and the brands inside the organization, just maybe not four or 500 of them. So I think he's pointing to exactly what you were referencing there, Viv. There's just a lot of brands. Now, obviously, WPP recently has been in the middle of a lot of merging with and acquisitions within the agencies themselves. So we've had JWT and Wonderman uh, merge to create Wonderman Thompson. Previously, we've had MEC and Maxis merge to create Wavemaker, Young and Rubicon with VML to create VML YNR. Um, and then also the White Agency and Gray have merged to create White Gray. So that is quite a lot that I've just rattled off there. There's actually All very more. innovative <laughs> names there. But I'm not going to go on for a very, very <laughs> long time. Um, yeah, so I think that in itself highlights that there's a lot of mergers that can happen. I'm sure we're not at the end of it just yet. There's going to be a lot more to come, I, I feel. I thought it's interesting too that um, Reid um, made the comparison with the consulting company given the way that uh, the consulting groups are coming in onto the advertising marketing um, patch. Uh, but it's it really, I struggle with that because uh, Accenture doesn't have 500 brands and uh, uh, the PWCs and that of the world, they're pretty um, aggressive in making sure that they have that one brand and uh, when you ring Deloitte's, you are ringing Deloitte's even if you're going to deal with their digital arm or um, their consulting arm or whatever so uh it this is i I still struggle with him making that um, analogy with the consulting groups also at advertising week in europe uh sir martin sorrell the founder of wpp who i think it's safe to say is not on good terms with wpp also spoke there and had a really wide-ranging interview where he talked about a lot of WPP's problems and how his new venture is going to reunite media and creative and do all these things. Now, it's quite interesting. I know that a lot of commenters who've been watching what Sorrell's been doing post-WPP find it really interesting that he's now suddenly able to identify all of these problems and some people have theorised that they could, in fact, be problems that he created that he's now miraculously solving. Is that the case, Paul? He sort of built up this incredible behemoth of a business. It had some problems. He left and now he's like, oh, my goodness, look at all of these problems. Yeah, you can't help but think this is his Frankenstein monster that's currently (laughs) eating people. And it's very much a creature of the cheap credit era that we've just been through where it was easy to raise money and uh, then spend on acquisitions. And, uh, yeah, they've made a lot of acquisitions. And you've got to ask too, is what value do these groups add at that level that uh, there's no real synergies no real um, uh, economies of scale there so really adding all of this overhead just makes it um, harder and harder and harder to a be more creative b deliver services for your customers and c get your um, margins up well Sorrel has said that the one issue he's found with going from hero to zero is that he doesn't have the scale that he used to have So he said, the good news is it's a clean sheet of paper. The bad news is it's a clean sheet of paper. I'm not weighed down by history or legacy analogue businesses. The bad news is I don't have the scale. So I guess we'll see who sort of emerges victorious from this. The brand new clean sheet of paper Sorrel or Mark Reed's brand new simplified WPP. And finally, another change to the 10 lineup. 
as it replaces Pointless with celebrity name game fronted by Ten's golden child, Grant Denyer. Now, would it really be the Mumbrella cast without mentioning Ten's programming changes? So for a long time, Channel 10 had Family Feud in the 6pm time slot, which is a really difficult one for Channel 10 because it's so dominated by 7 and 9's news bulletins, which frequently get in the high 900,000 metro viewers or sometimes above a million metro viewers if it's leading into a big tentpole program. Family Feud had a lot of positive viewer sentiment, even though its numbers were much lower, but as Denya himself admitted on his Sydney Today FM breakfast radio show, they flogged that horse way too much. There were too many iterations of the show. It was on too many times of the day and viewers just really fatigued of it. They replaced it with Pointless, which Josie, I believe, was quite a popular UK format. It was, well, popular is an interesting choice of words. <laughs> it was very sticky I guess is the word I would use to describe Goodness, it we've used that to describe yeah, the words I, and pointless now <laughs> yeah it essentially was always on it was on if you were ever watching tv in the day it was on around six o'clock it was probably on at four o'clock and five o'clock it was just on a lot so I don't know if that qualifies as being a much loved program but it definitely was out there people knew it was a thing well that's certainly how 10 tried to frame it I guess when they brought Pointless to Australia that this was a really successful, well-established UK format. So Family Feud went out with only 213,000 Metro viewers last year and then Pointless premiered to 493,000, which seemed like a massive improvement, but that number did steadily decline and viewer sentiment, you know, if Twitter's anything to go by, which, you know, it's not, but wasn't very positive. There was talk for a long time that Pointless was not long for this world. Did you ever get around to watching it, Paul? Well, I'm familiar with the UK version because um, I know people who are absolute fans of that, but uh, I, I never could see it really working in the Australian market. But one of the bigger issues, I think, for tennis, what are they trying to do with that time slot? So you're leading into the project, which does reasonably well in particular demographics, which I don't think line up with Family Feud or, um, or lines up even with Celebrity Name Game, the new show. So, yeah, I, I'd really question what are the programmers trying to do here? Are they uh, – how do you get that seamless run? And as you said in the intro to this segment, um, Viv, that the, they're up against the news, news shows which just dominate that segment. I, how do you lead into the evening with that? I also think just having done TV ratings quite a lot and just, you know, we're very aware of what does well and what doesn't. It just seems like almost every shiny floor show – doesn't do that well and I know that's a bit of a generalization but I really feel like those formats even things like My Kitchen Rules, Married at First Sight, all those shows that are reality but they're not on a shiny floor yes they always just seem to do a lot better and at the moment it doesn't really seem like 10 has a lot of them especially in it hasn't done in the last well, few weeks. So Celebrity Name Game is the show that is going to replace Pointless it's going to be fronted again by Denya and Josie you're right it's a shiny floor format which is Denya's specialty you could say and and something that Ten's really relying on Chris and Julia's Sunday night takeaway isn't doing very well uh Denya also fronted an Ellen DeGeneres spin-off game of games and I can't recall that doing 
particularly well. Dancing with the Stars, despite our new recruit Zoe watching it religiously, doesn't seem <laughs> to be going resonating with other people as well as it's resonating with Zoe. But I don't know. I don't know what else they could put in that time slot. Ten doesn't seem to have a lot of money to throw at a time slot that's not going to get that much money. Paul, can you see an option? Well, if I could, I'd probably be applying for a job there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've, I've said this on the podcast previously, that, and this goes as much for breakfast television as well. It's time to rethink some of these formats, um, uh, time for some original thinking from uh, some people who have paid a lot of money to supposedly do this original thinking and rather than picking up UK formats that are probably well past their use-by date already. Talking of original thinking, why is Grant Denyer on every single show? <laughs> well, he's Australia's most popular television personality, <laughs> Josie. Maybe if they just tried someone else, it might work. <laughs> is that too crazy to ask? Uh, be careful what you wish for there. We might end up with uh, Ernie Sigley or someone back, which, of course, no one in this room I knows what I'm talking about. I don't even know who that about. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that is, that is a good question. I guess Grant Denyer allegedly is Australia's most popular television personality based on the TV Week Gold Logie accolade he received last year. But, you know, his breakfast radio show with Ash London and Ed Cavalier does only command a 4.4% audience share. So that would indicate it's not hugely popular and the ratings would indicate that he's not hugely popular. But what I would say is he's got some fiercely, fiercely loyal fans so he must he must be doing something right because he does keep getting these gigs. But I wouldn't be surprised if, unfortunately, we're writing a story about celebrity name game not going particularly well in the ratings. But ten, I am more than willing to be wrong, and I should say that I'm very much looking forward to the premiere of Bachelor in Paradise, and we can talk about how fantastic that is when it when it finally hits our screens. Next up. Abigail Dawson and Josie chat to Speed's Ian Perrin. Joining us on today's podcast is Ian Perrin, Chief Accelerator at Speed, an independently owned media agency which partners with Omnicom, and our Deputy Editor, Josie Tutty. Thank you for joining us, Ian. Thank you for having me. No problem. So I guess, uh, I mean, you've spoken a lot about in the past and, and at Mumbrella Sage, which was an event that we did uh, a couple of weeks back on making mistakes and why fucking up is important. And as an industry, we're masters at celebrating the things we get right, but we have also become quite fearful of making mistakes and mistakes that lead to ineffective work and client losses. But you spoke about this, as I said, at at Sage, but why do you think making mistakes and fucking up is important? Well, firstly, I don't really want to be the poster child for fucking up in the industry, <laughs> but thank you for introducing me that way. Um, I think, uh, to, to your point, we are very good in this industry at celebrating account wins, at celebrating awards, celebrating things that we do well for our clients, which is obviously an incredibly important habit for us to get into. But when it comes to uh, mistakes that we make, we often tend to blame other people. We tend to blame procurement. We tend to blame pitch consultants. We suggest that clients didn't understand our proposition correctly. We blame everyone but ourselves. And I think if we are to improve as an industry, it's important for us to recognize 
recognize the mistakes that we do um, because I think history tells us that if we recognize mistakes that we make during the process and we instantly correct and and, and make uh, amendments to how we pitch the next time we're going to be a lot better so I think uh, so I think making mistakes and acknowledging that we're all humans who make mistakes then you know we're going to be in a far better position to build more sustainable more successful agencies moving forward one of the things we put a ban on in January of this year on Umbrella was prediction pieces mm. because I found that so many people in the industry just love predicting the future, looking at all the shiny new tech toys. And I just wonder if you think we spend too much time future gazing and not enough time looking back and analyzing our mistakes and learning from them. I think banning it is probably a good idea because I think for those <laughs> of us who read some of your columns, sometimes you get a little bit um, tired of those. And, 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 you know, I don't think there's, there's probably a right combination somewhere along the line of making sure we understand what we've done and why we've done it um, incorrectly but also learning from that rather than just you know predicting the future what have we learned from the past and therefore made better uh, moving forwards whether that's you know in our own personal life whether that's within the culture of the agency or the product that we are developing um, I think that would make us all better if we just were a little bit more aware of the mistakes or as I said fuck-ups that we have made. And to my earlier point, I should add on the record, you have had some great successes too. <laughs> Thank you very being... much. And some massive fuck-ups, but we all have, so that's okay. Um, uh, you know, being the CEO of Zenith and, and Managing Director of, of Naked Communications uh, a, a while back. But why do you think people in, in this industry are so reluctant to acknowledge and own up to the mistakes that they make? I think it's a fairly recent thing. I think over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a lot of pressure on agencies and marketing departments to perform better. And under that intense pressure, nobody wants to admit that they're making mistakes. So I think it's a fairly recent thing. I think the other factor is social media and commentary mm. um, you know, on your publication and other publications uh, where people feel that their personal brand might be attacked a little bit more. Um, they certainly don't want to open up and, and admit to mistakes that they have made. Um, so, so I think there's probably a, a, a almost a culture of fear of, of making mistakes. Whereas, what I think we need to be doing is is understanding that we do all make mistakes, and the people who thrive and do well in their career are those who um, react best and react the quickest um, to make um, changes. Will end up being more successful. Yeah, and uh, you know, I totally agree with you, and I think it's a really good point about about the culture that sort of has been created around making mistakes, but. As an agency leader, I can imagine it would be quite hard. Like, where do you draw the line on uh, when your employees make mistakes? How do you sort of breed a culture that, you know, people know that it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn for them from them? But where do you find that line? Well, I think importantly, it starts from the top. And I think it's important for leaders to um, admit when they make mistakes and start to create a culture within an organization where people... Um, know that if they make a mistake it's not the end of the world it's how they respond to it and and when we spoke at, at sage i used the example of eddie jones and how he coaches his english rugby team and and the the analogy he draws is the fact that he um decides on his selection policy based on how quickly his players get up after being tackled because he knows they're all great rugby players but the ones who've got the best attitude to get back into defensive line once they've they've made a tackle are those that perform best um, so I think if we can take that same sentiment and apply it to an agency culture where we encourage people to admit the mistakes they've made work very um, closely with them to make sure they don't make those mistakes I think that starts to foster a far greater more constructive culture 
culture um, than you know firing somebody for making a mistake because that just breeds a culture of, of fear and, and intolerance. Before you launched Speed, as I sort of mentioned earlier, you were the CEO of Zeto, which is now Zenith. Uh, and during your tenure, Zenith lost Nestle to what is now Wavemaker, but was MEC. And uh, I'm just going to read you something that that you wrote at the time to the then CEO of MEC, Peter Vogel. Uh, And and I quote this, uh, you said, one of my biggest frustrations in our industry is the reaction that many media agencies have towards losing business. They leak stories to the media about how the pitch was won on fake promises, how the winning agency undermined them with the client and of course, how they dropped their pants. So in a somewhat feeble attempt to break this vicious cycle, I wanted to publicly congratulate you on winning Nestle from us. You beat us this time, but we have beaten you before and we will strive to do so again. Talk me through your decision on, on uh, this this um, email or, or sort of open so letter. It was an open letter and, and it really was, um, I guess, aimed at our internal staff um, because I think it's really important that they knew that, you know, we had won, to some, won against an agency who had done better than us on the day, that we need to reflect on what we'd learned from that loss and we need to get off our butts and go out and win a piece of business. I think literally the last paragraph you wrote about the fact that we'd won some business from them, I think three months before the Nestle process was tantamount to the fact that we were no worse than them as an agency. Mm. They just performed better on the day. Um, And so being constructive in how we communicated that to them in the wider industry, but more importantly, our team to say, listen, you're a great team. You lost on the day, but great teams bounce back. So let's go out and win a piece of business and forget about Nestle. Um, and 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 I think it had an important. Uh, it was an important moment for us as an agency um, because losing business is incredibly difficult internally. It's an incredibly difficult thing to communicate. Uh, and I don't want to get into the specifics of the Nestle process, but um, you know the team was doing an outstanding job at that time. It certainly wasn't a reflection of them. It was a reflection of the fact that Nestle wanted to try something new. They'd been with our agency for I think it was something like fifteen to twenty years, so they were looking for something different at the time. It wasn't a reflection on the work that the team had done. Um, So it was a rallying cry to that team to go and say, come on, let's go and and win some business. And I think we won Lactalis Parmalat off um, Wavemaker's uh, sister agency, Mediacom, soon thereafter. And that was a bit of a moment for us as an agency. And we were talking sort of just just before we started this podcast about about pitching and, and media agencies. And when I took on the, the media agency, gosh, I can't even remember how long ago it was, maybe six months. Uh, I remember thinking, you know, in, in the creative and, and advertising agency kind of realm, it's quite easy to see how ad agencies differentiate themselves and get an idea for how they might pitch for different pieces of business. But Media agencies have sort of struggled to find that differentiation. I mean, how do, in a, in a pitch, media agencies kind of go in and, and sell themselves and, and differentiate themselves to the other agencies they're against? Well, I think it's very different for media versus creative agencies because a lot of the pitch processes we go through are procurement-driven and rate-driven. And so when it comes to differentiating yourself um, on the the key criteria that the client is looking for, which is price, then the only way you can differentiate yourself is is on price. Um, so I think that breeds uh, an area of undifferentiated mm. positioning from all of the media agencies. I think they try and stand for something that is slightly different, whether it be um, ROI at, at Zenith or human experiences at Starcom or 
um, you know, initiative have got an interesting new positioning around cultural branding. Like I think they very much want to be those sorts of agencies, but the reality is why they are procured by a lot of clients is based on the fact that they can manage the plumbing and managing manage the implementation of a media buy. So trying to differentiate your product significantly when 80% of what you do is all the same is a very difficult thing to do. Um, and, you know, there's some exciting developments just this week with Hearts and Science, which is a really interesting new positioning, which is obviously trying to balance um, the need for the science and data that we mm-hmm. have as an you know it's key requirement in those pitch processes but also understanding that there's a human heart element to to a brand and I think that's a more interesting brand than perhaps some of the other um, more dull boring agency <laughs> names and positionings that there are in the market without naming any price is obviously something that I think a lot of media agencies have have struggled with in the pitching process and you know when you're pitching based on who's going to offer the cheapest rates and the cheapest deals it does create a little bit of a race to the bottom but whose responsibility is it to to fix this and to improve this is it is it the brand side or is it the agency side or is it a combination of both well I don't know if it necessarily needs fixing because at the end of the day we're procuring um, media on behalf of a client usually that amount of money is the largest spend that they have as an organization Um, so making sure that they get the very lowest rates from their media supplier is and will always be critically important so I don't think that necessarily needs to be fixed Um, and if I was a client that would be something that would be really important for me Um, but what I don't think there is quite enough of is a balance between the strategic creative innovative product of media agencies um, and not enough clients are focusing on that in terms of who they choose Um, so I think I think it's on, it's, a, it's an onus on media agencies to position themselves better, but there's also an onus on client to say, listen, it actually does make a difference who's writing my communication strategy, who's responsible for the innovation that um, leads from that strategy and in, into implementation planning, who's going to work best with my creative agency, who's going to understand my audience better. Um, and so I think a lot of smarter clients are now starting to realize that. So I think it, it's finding a balance rather than trying to fix the to the bottom process that seems to pervade our industry too much. Uh, you know, I think a really good example of that is the Australian Open Uber Eats campaign, which uh, was created by Special Group, and, and they bought the last ad of the ad break, so people thought they were still watching the Australian Open, but it was an ad for Uber Eats. And I think that's a really good example of creativity in in media buying and and media communications and sort of how we can progress further and also see a little bit more creativity and differentiation within media agencies. Absolutely. I think it's spot on because it's not just innovation for the sake of innovation. It's not just a media first. Obviously, the agency sat down and worked out what people are going to be doing while they're watching the tennis and how can they integrate their brand in the most relevant way um, for the consumer. Um, And that, to me, is just perfect example of really strong. um, Some people call it media planning. Some people call it communication strategy. Some people call it channel planning. Um, And I think the gap between media and creative um, has really made it difficult for those things to come to life. So the media agency gets res- you know, given the responsibility of, of, of coming up with the lowest price and the creative agency comes up with a really cool ad. And obviously the combination of media and creative in that example is absolutely spot on for the brand. Now that's a really great example, but why aren't there more examples that we can point to of creativity in that way? And is it a problem 
with Australian media agencies or is it a problem with creativity in the industry in general? Why aren't there more great examples like that? I don't think it's an Australian issue. I think it's a global issue. And I think the key reason for it is the fact that creative agencies and media agencies have become too separated in terms Mm. of how they operate. Um, So, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you would have a media person. Certainly when I started in the industry, I'd go and sit with the creative department. Um, So when they're ideating some ideas, I could talk about how you could potentially use media channels off the back of some of those ideas, coming up with different media plans dependent on the idea and how that idea might roll out and I think because agencies have become so separate now that that sort of thinking never quite happens so the media agency goes off and and does a few deals the creative agency goes off and comes up with some cool um, ideas and then the night before everyone comes together and mashes their two presentations (laughs) together usually changes a few logos on the bottom of the page and hopes like hell that the client doesn't notice that there's been no integration whatsoever Um, so I think it's more a structural issue within um, how a agencies are um, uh, building their businesses Um, and I I think what's interesting now is if you look at uh, I guess more modern progressive agencies such as CHEP um, such as Apparent um, they're very much uh, building media as part of their um, organization I think Thinkabell is another example Mm. where it's not a separate division or a separate department Um, communications is solved together without separating those two things so hopefully as more agencies in that space start to become more prevalent we'll see greater innovation the era of full service is coming back (laughs) I don't think the era of full service is coming back but I think the era of thinking about creative media digital data everything together is coming back I think You'll always have specialist services in various areas, whether that be PR or media buying. Um, But I think if we can start to think more holistically up front when a brief comes in, I think that's going to come more back in vogue. And when those agencies are separate, when the media agency and the creative agency aren't the same, how, how can those two agencies better communicate with each other? It sounds a really trite thing to say, but I think the most important thing is to actually sit together. So it sounds like a very simple, obvious solution, um, but it's very different when two people are working on a project in a, in a different place. So I think physically actually bringing people together is is realistically a good answer to the question because you know if if you're thinking of a media plan you go well hold on a second there's a really interesting opportunity in terms of how we could segment a programmatic audience against this specific message and you mention that to the creative and they can start thinking about okay well how does this idea translate against that segment you know rather than them just coming up with a whole bunch of ideas that are just sprayed across every single channel without any foresight into which channel they're going to be spending the majority of the money on. And if it is such a simple solution, why don't you think it's happening more often? Well, I, I think it's happening more and more. Obviously, the reason I have a relationship with uh, with Cleminger Group is to sit within their organization and to help mm. um, facilitate that. So I've probably got a bit of a vested interest in that answer because I believe quite passionately um, that that is the solution to it. But as I said, you know, newer agencies are starting to build themselves mm. um, that way. And certainly the success that um, CHE Proximity has had and Thinkabell have had with, you know, wonderful partnership with Margie Reed, who's a fantastic operator down in Melbourne. You know, they're not bringing somebody like her in 10 years into their partnership. She came in very, very quickly into their partnership and will probably massively shape the sorts of, of, of ideas that Thinkabell come up with. Um, and that's got to be better for our industry. 
And just to talk about uh, your agency speed for a minute, uh, you know, as I've mentioned throughout your career, you've spent time with Mindshare, Naked uh, and what is now Zenith. Why did you decide to launch Speed? Um, What I saw was an opportunity in the market um, where media agencies had become too siloed, too focused on deals, too focused on annual deals that happen too slowly. Um, So I thought there was an opportunity for an agency that was more driven on around speed and activating in market as quickly as possible. Um, And part of that is doing deals for clients that are a little bit more dynamic than your average annual deal structure. Um, But the other part of it is making sure we set up processes in place to produce work faster. So we have rules around, we don't have any presentation that's longer than 10 slides. Strategically, we get involved a lot earlier in the process and work with the creative. And if you can do that and create an aligned strategy up front, then I think you create speed through the process rather than you know, non-alignment up front in the process and all of a sudden nobody knows what to do halfway through. So that's a critical element of that. And I guess from my experience at, at Naked and being from a strategic side of the business, I think being able to have those conversations up front makes it a little bit easier for speed to operate. And so the success I think we've had with clients is having senior people in the room, solving a, a communications problem with a communications architecture that everyone's aligned on, and then they are able to activate faster. And uh, talking about about Naked, uh, when, when we're at Sage, uh, I know you mentioned that during your time as the managing director there, there were some clients that, that were keen for Naked to, to do their media buying. And, and I think the decision was that that kind of wasn't, wasn't what Naked was about. Uh, talk me through this and, and the decision-making process there. Um, so I think when I was at Naked, we were very much focused on being a communication solutions provider. And, and in a way, not buying media was a, was a very good thing because it gave us a very differentiated positioning. And we've spoken about how media agencies really battle to position themselves. And, and still now everyone talks about, I guess, the Naked brand and, and how it pioneered channel planning in the UK and, and certainly in Australia. So it was, it was critical for the business to focus on what it did very well. Um, and I think certainly for a a given period of time you know I don't think anyone would argue that Naked was the best channel planning agency in Australia Um, I think that there is a limitation in terms of how big the uh, business opportunity is if you're only going to focus on channel planning and strategy Um, the reality is there are only so many clients in Australia who can afford um, to pay for a premium service in that area and you also got a fairly small area of expertise Um, so So I think that was one of the difficulties of growing the Naked brand. I almost think that Naked would have been better staying smaller Mm -hmm. at a more premium um, cost rather than trying to play in other areas. So I think there was some really strong rationale as to why Naked didn't buy media. Um, I think where we've gone with speed is, you know, we're a a communication solutions provider, but if clients want us to buy media, we have a a really strong partnership with Omnicom Media Group and we've worked very closely to make sure that what we're providing from a speed point of view there's no point of friction in terms of the handover and the execution of that buy uh, into Omnicom Media Group so it just felt like for me that you know the naked model was great for when it was but we've probably you know what we're doing with speed is slightly different now because we're in a, a slightly different market. And just to round it out and, and take it back to making mistakes what's the biggest mistake you've ever made in your career? Um, I think the biggest mistake I've made, and it's a very personal one, is is I landed up working for an organisation that I didn't believe made me the most honest human being. 
Um, and I think we all have to look in the mirror when we go to bed at night and um, decide whether the life we're leading or the job we are working on um, reflects the human being that you want to be. Um, so I, I think I landed up in an organization which probably didn't match uh, my morals and my ethics. And I think that was probably my biggest mistake. And it's a very personal mistake. Um, but I like to think now that I've learned from that and part of the reason for you know speed being independent and growing a business the way um, we've grown the business is I want to make sure that that's something I'm ethically comfortable with. Um, so hopefully I've learned from my biggest fuck up. Thank you so much. It's it's really lovely to have to have someone speak so so honestly, and it's it's very refreshing. So thank you for joining us, Ian. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. And before we wrap up, we have a message from the people at Pitch to Punchline. Joining us in the studio, we have Shambles Communications, Gareth Eden Stite and comedian Cam Knight. Hello. Hey, Josie. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having us. That's all right. Now, if you're wondering why Cam and Gareth are here, that's because they're involved in Pitch to Punchline, which takes place on Monday, the 3rd of June, the week of Mumbrella 360, and will raise funds for mental health charity Batir. Cam is gearing up to mentor 20 applicants for six weeks before they perform at the gala event in front of up to 300 members of the industry at Sydney Opera House, no less. Now, the event is Gareth's brainchild. Gareth, why on earth did you come up with this idea? Well, why, why not, Jay-Z? I think um, we work in a creative industry. We push boundaries and do things differently. So um, this seemed like a great opportunity to do something different. Um, that raise money for a great cause that's a, a problem in our industry and also entertain a lot of people at the same time so why not and I'm, I'm, you're going to sign up of course are you? No <laughs> I, on, I only speak behind the microphone when I'm in a room where no one can see me Maybe like right we can, now I'll put, a, well, I'll put a screen up <laughs> On the, yeah, on the I'll just pretend I'm podcasting yeah, and you can in, have a microphone. in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on the side facing you, or just say, you're great, Josie. <laughs> like that. Just that have a picture nice. of her. She can perform <laughs> behind great. her own picture. <laughs> of course, of course you, you are great. I never said you weren't. <laughs> you could be better. Now, Cam, yes. are the media and marketing industry particularly funny people? Who knows? We're going to, we're going to find that out. If I, could, sure. if I could speak on behalf of the media yes. and marketing industry for a minute, mm-hmm. I reckon they are. Well, yeah, I mean, they come up with so many... Great ideas mm. to, to market things in the media. <laughs> There's so many great commercials out there. I mean, they're amazing. You've been, you've been in some I've of them. I've been in a few commercials. Yeah. I've done a few commercials, though, mind you, where somebody from media and marketing hasn't done their job yeah. and they've gotten on set and they've said, hey, what are a couple of gags that you could do? And I'm like, well, that was probably your job, wasn't it, when you were coming up with the idea? Is that what I'm doing right now, basically? <laughs> it's all about getting the most from the talent, Cam. Yes, That's what it yes. is. Cam, That's say right. something funny right now. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to become a standout stand-up or sponsor this cracking event, and why wouldn't you, you can visit pitchtopunchline.com. That's two, the number two. Applications close on the 28th of March. And finally, we've been busy planning our sessions for Mumbrella 360. Yes, it is that time of year again. The first rounds of speakers have been announced, including Dollar Shave Club's Matt Knapp and heroic Qantas pilot and A380 captain Richard DeCrepney. Visit mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 to find out more. And remember that you've got until the 8th of April to book your early bird tickets. That's all for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Viv.